You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Why Peter? Good question, isn't it? Why did the Lord choose to use Peter to go talk to Cornelius in Acts chapter 10 and Acts chapter 11? What's the significance of having Peter there? There were a lot of people who would have been a lot easier to get them to go to Caesarea and share Christ with Cornelius. He could have used, for instance, the Apostle Paul or Saul of Tarsus. I would assume from the chronology that is in Acts that Saul was saved by this time and he's the apostle to the Gentiles. He's the missionary to the Gentiles, the one who's going to take the gospel and plant Gentile churches all over the Roman Empire. So why not use Paul? He had already been told that he was going to be the apostle to the Gentiles. Paul wouldn't have needed some large vision of a white sheet let down from four corners from the sky with all of those animals on it and to be taught that God shows partiality to no man. Saul wouldn't have needed that. And as long as we're going to talk about people that God could have used to bring the Gospel to Cornelius, how about Philip? Philip wouldn't have needed any large vision of this sheet brought down from heaven by four corners with all of the animals on it to be taught that God shows partiality to no man. Philip already understood that. Philip was a Hellenistic Jew. He was like Stephen. You remember Stephen had argued that because the Messiah had come and had died, it therefore set aside the law and it set aside the particularness of the Jewish people and the function of the temple and the sacrifices, and Stephen was stoned because they said he attacks the temple, and he attacks Moses, and he attacks the law. Philip was more Gentile-minded, even though he was a Jew. He was a a little bit more Greek-cultured, so to speak. He thought more like the Greeks, and he was willing to take the gospel to places that would have made other Jews uncomfortable. Remember, it was Philip who took the gospel to the Samaritans, not the apostles. It was Philip who got that Ethiopian eunuch saved, not the apostles. And Philip was in Caesarea. Chapter 8, verse 40, says that after he led that Ethiopian eunuch to the Lord, he made his way from city to city all the way up until he got to Caesarea. And there it seems that he stopped. In fact, years later, when the Apostle Paul goes to the city of Caesarea in Acts chapter 21, verse 8, it says he stayed at the home of Philip the Evangelist. Philip was in Caesarea. There could have been dozens of people that the Lord could have used. Philip was right there. Philip was ready. He was able. He was willing. He had the gift of evangelism. Why take Peter from Jerusalem, bring him all the way down through Lydda, up to Joppa, have him stay there for a few weeks, and go all the way up to Caesarea and use Peter? Why that? You know the answer to that question, don't you? Because the Lord wanted to teach Peter a lesson. So He chose Peter. And not only did He want to teach Peter that God shows partiality to no man, but God wanted to teach that lesson to the other eleven apostles and to the Jewish brethren who were in Jerusalem so that they could understand God has torn down this wall between Jew and Gentile and the age of Jewish particularism is over. And the Gentiles have now come into the body of Christ, into the church, and they are to be evangelized and discipled and welcomed as full brothers and sisters in Christ. That lesson came through crystal clear to Peter. Now the Lord is going to use Peter to bring the rest of the apostles up to speed. 
After Peter has led Cornelius and his household to the Lord, they have been baptized. Peter has stayed there a few days, likely discipling them and teaching them. And now Peter goes back up to Jerusalem and he receives what we would not call a hero's welcome when he gets back in. In chapter 11, we see that when Peter gets back in Jerusalem, he is greeted with a certain degree of hostility. And they put him on the hot seat. And I want you to notice three things. First, I want you to notice Peter's rebuke in verses 1 through 3. Then we're going to look at Peter's report in verses 4 through 17. And then their response in verse 18. First, Peter's rebuke. Look at Acts chapter 11, verse 1. Now when the apostles and the brethren who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God, and when Peter came up to Jerusalem, those who were circumcised took issue with him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. Word of what Peter had done in staying with Cornelius, this Gentile, had preceded him back to Jerusalem. The apostles and the brethren who are back in Jerusalem somehow hear of this scandal that Peter the Jewish apostle has stayed in the home of an unclean Gentile. And they have a bone to pick with Peter because he's violated their Jewish separatism. And you know how scandals are. A scandal with sandals makes it before a man with sandals can. It precedes Peter to Jerusalem and they hear before Peter even shows up what has gone on. And they likely had heard scattered stories. How did they hear this? Did Peter send a delegation? I don't think he did. How did they hear it? There were likely brethren, Christians in Caesarea, who met Peter while he was there. Peter stayed at the home of Cornelius. I can well imagine Peter taking Cornelius and all these Gentiles who have just got saved and bringing them down to the local assembly and saying, look, these men and women are your brothers in Christ. They've received the Holy Spirit. They're saved. And now I want you to welcome them and incorporate them into the church So Peter likely would have had a job on his hands in taking these Gentiles and incorporating them with the other believers who are already in Caesarea. And that would have spread. Real ardent Jews in Caesarea would have said, Peter's staying with a Gentile? We've got to get this news back to the other apostles. And it would have traveled all the way back to Jerusalem. Now Peter makes his way back up to Jerusalem. And he shows up in Jerusalem and it says that they had heard that the Gentiles had received the Word. That is to say, they heard Gentiles got saved. So it wasn't just that they had heard Peter had eaten with Gentiles or stayed with Gentiles, but they heard that Peter was responsible for this cataclysm of Gentiles getting saved. They couldn't handle that. They knew that Gentiles had received the Word. Gentiles had been saved, and they're upset that they've received the Word of God, they've accepted Christ, and so they've pick some issue that they can bone up with Peter. Peter, we got a problem with you. And this comes from the circumcised brethren who are in Jerusalem. That's Luke's way of telling us these were the ardent Jews. So you have the apostles and the rest of the circumcised Christians, that is to say the Jewish Christians, who are in Jerusalem. They hear this and they've got a problem. These are the Jews who meet in the temple for worship. These are the Jews who are, who are still zealous for the law, for the customs, for the way of their forefathers, for the way it has always been done. They are zealous, law-keeping, law-abiding Jews. And unmistakably, these are men and women who think that circumcision is still necessary for salvation. Law-keeping is still necessary for salvation. They have no book of Galatians to open up and read. It hasn't been written yet. So they haven't come to the understanding that these things have passed away. This is a transitional period. So the apostles and the Jewish brethren, passionate for their law, They hear that Peter has violated it. And when he shows up, 
They say to him, Peter, we heard that you went in and you ate with uncircumcised men. Peter, did you have ham? Did Cornelius feed you bacon and eggs for breakfast? What did you eat? With who did you eat it? Why did you eat it, Peter? Notice what they don't ask. Peter, tell us, how is it that a Gentile can be saved? That must have been exciting. To see somebody like a Gentile, like this man, whoever it was that you stayed with, to see him trust Christ and receive the Spirit of God and be welcomed into the blessings of our Jewish Messiah, what must that have been like, Peter? Is it really possible that a Gentile can be saved? They don't ask any of that. A sinner has been saved. The angels in heaven are rejoicing. And the apostles are concerned with what? The menu. What did you eat? When did you eat it? And with whom did you eat it? How narrow-minded can you be? How off-focus can you be? Men and women have got saved, and they're concerned with what Peter ate and where he ate it. You stayed in the house of an uncircumcised Gentile and ate with him. There's no concern over doctrine here. What does, what does this all have to do with? Their customs, their culture, their traditions, and their comfort zones. That's what it boils down to. Men and women have got saved, and these guys are so fixated upon their own comfort, their own traditions, their own customs, their own social taboos, that's all that they can see. That's all that they can fixate upon. <laughs> Friends, I, every time I read this, it just takes my breath away. I laugh every time I read this because it is so sad that it's humorous. People have got saved, and what are they thinking about? Food. Food. Not baptism, not the coming of the Spirit, not this brand new mission field that's been dropped on their doorstep. They're concerned with food. How easy it is for you and I to fall into the exact same trap. Hmm? To be more concerned with our comfort zones, our traditions, our cultures, the way it's always been done, the way we've always enjoyed having it done. Can you imagine them saying to Peter, Peter, we liked it the way it was. We're uncomfortable with all these new people coming into the church. You've got to understand the Gentiles are not like us. They don't know how we think. They don't know how we act. They don't keep our law. They're not like us, Peter. We liked it the way it was when the Gospel was just our tight-knit little Jewish family. We don't like the new people who are showing up. The church, Peter. That's our bone. That's our issue. You and I fall into the same trap, friends. We're more concerned with our comfort zones, our traditions, our taboos, our customs. Makes me uncomfortable. I don't like it. don't like those people showing up. I don't like those people. I don't feel comfortable around them, so I'm just going to stay in my own little comfort zone. And God has this way of just disrupting the status quo, doesn't it? And just forcing us right out to accept it. That's Peter's rebuke. Now, did they know, did Peter know that this was coming? You think Peter knew this was coming? I think he did. Look at verse 12. Peter makes reference to the six brethren whom he brought up with him from Caesarea to Jerusalem. Why did he bring those six brethren? Well, if he left from Caesarea to go back to Jerusalem, he likely went down to Joppa and then back through Lydda the way he had come, which was the easiest route, and then all the way up to the city of Jerusalem. That would have been quite natural for Peter to do that. Now Peter, when he leaves Caesarea, he doesn't drop the six men who came with him from Joppa off in Joppa and then, Joppa and then proceed to Jerusalem alone. He doesn't do that. Joppa was home for these six men. 
He takes those six witnesses up with him to Jerusalem. Why would he do that? You know why he did it? One of two things. Either he knew that they knew, and he knew they were upset, and he knew they were going to have a bone to pick with him, which would be my guess. And so rather than dropping these six witnesses off in Joppa, he takes them with him up to Jerusalem. He's going to need six eyewitnesses as to what happened. Because he knows they've got issues with him. Or, Peter didn't think that they knew, but he knew that when they knew, they would be upset. Did you follow that? If they didn't know, Peter knew when they find out, this is going to cause a firestorm of criticism. So he doesn't even bother dropping the six off in Joppa. You guys are coming with me up to Jerusalem. Six eyewitnesses to what happened. Friends, you and I get this mentality sometimes in the early church that it was this utopic environment in which there was no conflict, no struggles, nobody ever had to learn anything because everybody knew all truth and they obeyed it perfectly and so there were no interpersonal conflicts, no divisions, no schisms, no strife that needed to be undone or taken care of. How faulty, faulty of a view that is, isn't it? What do we have here? we got one apostle who's being called onto the carpet in front of the other eleven and the Jewish brethren back in Jerusalem and they want to pick issues with him over what he ate while he was with Cornelius. The apostles had to learn some things too, friends. They weren't perfect men. They're like us. The early church in Jerusalem was just like the church now. It is composed of sinners saved by the grace of God who bring all of their baggage into the church with them when they become Christian. That's the way it was in Jerusalem. And here are all these Jewish brethren who got a bone to pick with Peter over what he ate. And so Peter's going to give them his report in verses 4-17. through 17. And I want you to notice how gracious he is. Peter doesn't get hot under the collar. He doesn't get upset. He doesn't start arguing. Peter demonstrates what Peter commands of giving to every man an answer with meekness and gentleness. That's just his demeanor. And what Peter does is he just recites for them the events that he saw unfold from his perspective. It's just his eyewitness testimony. Here's what I saw. Here's what I heard. Here's what was said to me. Here's what I witnessed. And I've got these six men who entered the house with me that can testify to this. And a lot of times that is just the easiest, most straightforward way to communicate truth. It's just to say, here's what the Lord has taught me. That's what a witness does. Just says, this is what God has shown me. This is what God has done for me in my heart. And this is what Christ has done in my life. That's what, that's what Peter does. So he recites to them the events of which you and I are familiar because we covered all of this in Acts chapter 10, didn't we? We covered the vision with Cornelius, the preparation of Cornelius. We looked at the preparation of Peter and how he saw the vision and what happened when Peter arrived at Cornelius' house all the way up through the tongues in verse 48 of chapter 10 and the baptism of all those new converts. Peter just relays this. So let's just read it together. And we won't look at the details of this because you could, I, I could easily just repeat the last four sermons as to what's happened here. But let's just look at how Peter relates it. Verse 4. Peter began speaking and he proceeded to explain to them in an orderly sequence saying, I was in the city of Joppa praying in a trance. I saw a vision, an object coming down like a great sheet lowered by the four corners from the sky. And it came right down to me. And when I had fixed my gaze on it and I was observing it, I saw the four-footed animals of the earth, the wild beasts, the crawling creatures, and the birds of the air. I also heard a voice saying to me, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord, nothing unholy or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But a voice from heaven answered a second time, what God has cleansed no longer consider unholy. This happened three times, and everything was drawn back up into the sky. And behold, at that moment three men appeared at the house in which we were staying, having been sent from Caesarea. 
The Spirit told me to go with them without misgivings. These six brethren also went with me, and we entered the man's house. And saying, uh, sorry, I lost my place. And he reported to us how he had seen the angel standing in the house and saying, Send to Joppa and have Simon, who is also called Peter, brought here. And he will speak words to you by which you will be saved, you and your whole household. And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them just as he did upon us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he used to say, John baptized with water, but you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Therefore, if God gave to them the same gift as he gave to us after believing in the Lord Jesus, who was I that I could stand in God's way? He just gives them an orderly account. Here's what happened. Here's what I saw. Here's what I was told by Cornelius that he saw. Here's how the whole thing unfolds. He just lays it all out for them. Just front to ending. Here's what I have learned. If you have a problem with this, you argue with the Lord. There's something that's missing in Peter's account. And it's almost glaring in its absence. Did you see what it was? There's something that he doesn't mention. In fact, there's a whole lot of things that he doesn't mention that by their absence they stand out. That he doesn't mention any of this. Look at verse 11. Read it with me again. See if you pick it up. Verse 11, And behold, at that moment three men appeared at the house in which we were staying, having been sent to me from Caesarea. The Spirit told me to go with them without misgivings. These six brethren also went with me, and we entered the man's house. And he reported to us how he had seen the angel standing in his house and saying, Send to Joppa and have Simon, who is also called Peter, brought here, and he will speak words to you by which you will be saved, you and all your household. You see what's missing? Cornelius is missing. Doesn't mention Cornelius' name, does he? Doesn't mention anything about Cornelius, does he? Does Peter relay to the apostles that Cornelius was a devout Roman soldier? Does Peter relay to the apostles that Cornelius was a Roman Gentile? Does he say that he was devout, that he was praying, that he was giving alms to the Jewish people? Does Peter mention his affluence, his wealth, his status, his servants, his household, and all of that? Does Peter mention that Cornelius was leading his whole family in religious devotion when Peter showed up? Peter refers to him as this man. We entered this man's house. (laughs) How can you leave out all of the other stuff? You know why he leaves out all the other stuff? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter who the Gentile is. For Peter's purposes, that's irrelevant. Doesn't matter what his background is, doesn't matter what his culture is, doesn't matter what his skin color is, doesn't matter his religious bent, whether it's to God or away from God, it doesn't matter that he was wealthy and affluent, that he was praying when the angel appeared, it doesn't matter that he was giving alms to the Jewish people. Nothing about Cornelius matters because Peter's whole emphasis is not on Cornelius and it's not on him. It's on God. The Lord gave me a vision. The Lord told me to go to Caesarea. The Lord made the angel appear to this man. The Lord told this man to send for me. And the Lord fell upon them in the Spirit just as He did upon us. The Lord saved the Gentiles. It's the Lord's work. That's how He's presented the whole thing. It doesn't matter that it was Peter. It doesn't matter that it was Cornelius. None of the details are important. It's all incidental. The only thing Peter wants to communicate is that Gentiles have been saved. It was the Lord who did it. And so how can you argue against that? He marshals out really three exhibits. If you can picture Peter on trial, exhibit A, six witnesses. Were they friendly witnesses? They're hostile witnesses. They're really not predisposed toward Gentile salvation. They show up there and they're amazed that the Gentiles are saved. You mean Gentiles have souls? How can a Gentile be saved? And they're just in awe over this. They may not be friendly witnesses to what's happened, but they're trustworthy witnesses. And Peter lines them up. These six men enter the house with me. 
Exhibit B, the tongues. As I was beginning to speak, the Lord fell upon them just as He did upon us at the beginning. Peter points to Pentecost and he's basically saying what happened in Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost to us in the beginning is the same thing that happened to these Gentiles. The Gentiles had their own little Pentecost in Caesarea corresponding to the Jewish Pentecost in Jerusalem of the same nature for the same purpose of demonstrating that the Spirit has come also to the Gentiles. They couldn't argue with that. Exhibit C, the fulfillment of Scripture. As I saw this, Peter says, I remembered the words of the Lord Jesus, who was the greatest prophet of all, who said, John baptized you with water, but I'll baptize you with the Spirit. And so Peter says, I have six witnesses. We saw the tongues, and I remembered that all of this was a fulfillment of what the Lord Jesus told us would happen. He said in Acts chapter 1, verse 5, before his ascension and before Pentecost, the Lord said, John baptized you with water, but I will baptize you with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Peter says, this, what I have seen, is that. So not only do I have witnesses, and not only did we see the tongues, but also, my friends, this is the fulfillment of what Jesus said He would do. It was fulfilled on the day of Pentecost, but it was fulfilled afresh, anew, in Acts chapter 10, when the Gentiles were brought into the church. Those three exhibits. How are you going to argue against that? I mean, that's quite a marshalling of evidence, is it not? But what's Peter going to do? Peter says, after seeing that they received the same gift as we did after believing on the Lord Jesus. Look at the end of verse 17. Who was I that I could stand in God's way? <laughs> Who am I? What am I going to do? Say, no, Lord. Don't like it. Makes me uncomfortable. Violates my traditions. I have all my little walls, all my little barriers. I'm comfortable right here in my little zone. So, Lord, I don't like what you're doing, and I'm not going to have any part in it. Peter says to have that kind of an attitude is to stand in God's way. I saw the Gentiles receive the Spirit. They're welcomed as full members in the body of Christ. Who am I to stand in God's way and to say, no, Lord, I don't like it. In fact, I'll resist you. And the implication to the other apostles is, you better like it and learn to like it and swallow this, because if you don't, you're standing in God's way. God has opened the door to the Gentiles. And if you will not accept that, if you will not take that as an opportunity and understand that and move forward with God's program, then you are responsible for standing in God's way. And Peter says, I saw what the Lord did, and I'm not going to be the one to say no to Him. So what do they do? Look at their response in verse 18. When they heard this, they quieted down. They shut their mouths. They stopped the contention, the striving against Peter. And they praised God, saying, well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also repentance that leads to life. Oh, listen to the excitement in those words, huh? Well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also repentance that leads to life. That's hardly the excitement for ministry opportunity that you would expect from the apostles, isn't it? Do you know that there's no historical record in the book of Acts of the apostles getting excited? I should say the apostles in Jerusalem getting excited over Gentile evangelism. A new mission field has been dropped in their lap. A new frontier in church history has been opened up to them. And they should be excited. They should be saying, wow, we thought the gospel was just for the Jews and those half-breed Samaritans. Now we find out that the whole world can accept Christ as their Messiah. The whole world can come under the blessings that we experience. This is great. I know all kinds of Gentiles that I'm wishing I could share the gospel with. I can't wait to tell them so they'll get saved. Well then. God has granted to the Gentiles also repentance that leads to life. That makes me want to cry. It sounds like this is the worst news they've heard all day long. And by far, my friends, it is the best news they've heard all day long. But they just, although they're obedient, 
They're willing to acknowledge that. There just is not this passion for this huge ministry opportunity that God has dropped in their lives. And it's right here on their doorsteps. And they reluctantly accept it. I'll give you a preview of the rest of the book of Acts. You know what happens? The emphasis for the rest of the book of Acts changes from the mother church in Jerusalem to the church in Antioch. And Jerusalem begins to shrink in significance and the church in Antioch begins to grow in significance. You know why that was? The church in Jerusalem, even though they understood that truth, they were slow in taking advantage of it. They weren't passionate about Gentile missions. They weren't passionate about taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. But there was one man in Acts chapter 13 who was passionate about it. and He was in the church in Antioch. And he takes the gospel to the ends of the earth. And Antioch replaces Jerusalem as the church in the region. And the more they resisted the will of God, the more God set them aside on the back burner and stopped using them. The apostles were still there. God still did ministry there. But the focus for Luke turns to Antioch because that becomes the central church in the whole rest of the book. Because that's the church that understood God's mission and took it to the ends of the earth. And they didn't care about their comfort zones. They didn't care about their traditions. They didn't care about what they wanted and what they thought. They weren't reluctant in the least. Hey, God's opened the door to the Gentiles. Off we go. That's the only excuse we need. And Paul took it. And he ran with it all the way to Rome. And saved hundreds of thousands of people because he was passionate about it. Well, God has granted to the Gentiles also repentance that leads to life. That makes me sad. Verse 18 contains an essential truth. I want you to notice it. Who is it that grants repentance? It's God who grants repentance. We've been through this before because this is the third time in 11 chapters that Luke has mentioned this. This is the third time in 11 chapters that Luke has said almost this precise phrase. In Acts chapter 3, verse 26, Apostle Peter says that God sent Christ to bless you by turning you from your wicked ways. That was in one of his sermons. And Peter was saying that one of the blessings of God is that it's God who turns us from our sin. In Acts chapter 5, the Apostle Peter said that God has exalted Christ as Prince and Savior to grant repentance to Israel and the forgiveness of sins. And now in Acts chapter 11, God has granted also to the Gentiles repentance that leads to life. You see, repentance is a two-sided coin. It is my responsibility, and I am held accountable for my repentance. And if there is anything that keeps a lost sinner from Christ, it is his lack of repentance and his unwillingness to repent and turn from his sin. And no man is saved without repentance. We must repent of our sin and place our faith in Christ to turn from our wickedness and our wicked ways and trust in the Messiah. And it's my responsibility, it is my duty, and if I refuse to do it, I will be judged for eternity for not repenting and believing on Christ. But, who is it that grants my repentance? It's God. He granted repentance to Israel and the forgiveness of sin, Acts chapter 5. He turned me from my wicked ways in order that I cannot boast and say, hey, I repented and that's what makes me better than the next guy. I can't boast about that. Why? Because my repentance is a gift from God. He granted to me the repentance that leads to life. Friends, if you're saved, it's because God reached down and He granted you repentance and the forgiveness of sins. And He graced you with that. So we arrive at the end of chapter 11, verse 18. Cornelius is saved. The apostles have accepted it. Peter has accepted it. The Gentiles have been saved. They've been brought into the church. The precedent has been set. 
The ministry field has opened up. God has given them this opportunity. So what are you and I to take out of these last two chapters if we were to just kind of sum up these last five sermons on Cornelius? Let me suggest three things. First, the gospel, I should say the grace of God, is a monopoly that is owned by no man. No man has a monopoly on God's grace. All of us have been where Cornelius is at, and all of us have been where Peter is at. All of us have been where Cornelius is at in that we are separated from the love of Christ, separated from the grace of God, separated from the promises that He's given. We are without God in the world, destitute, lost, and hopeless, and not a one of us as a lost sinner can say, I need God's grace, I earned God's grace, I demand God's grace, and I demand that He show it to me. Not a one of us has a monopoly on God's grace. And it's humbling, isn't it? To realize that we are helpless, totally without Christ. And if it weren't for the grace of God, where would Cornelius be? He would still be lost. Because it's God who granted him repentance and brought him to faith in Christ. And all of us have been where Peter is at. Now having received the grace of God, thinking we should keep it to ourselves. (laughs) God certainly wouldn't extend grace to that individual. I know how that person lives. I know what that person thinks. I know that person's background. Friends, no man has a monopoly on God's grace and having received it as a gift from God, you and I can make no demands to keep it to ourselves and to say we're not going to share it with other people or we're not going to accept other people who have also accepted the grace of God and received the grace of God. No man has a monopoly on God's grace. Second, there's only one church. That's what Luke is trying to show us in the book of Acts. There's only one church. Jew, Gentile, circumcised, uncircumcised, black, white, there's only one church. And there will be people in heaven, and this blows my mind, there will be people in heaven from nationalities, from nations, from people groups, from tribes, from languages, from cultures, ethnicities, backgrounds, and time periods that I've never even known existed. And we will be joint heirs with Christ, equal sharers in the gospel of Christ. There will be people in heaven whose background I have never even known possible, whose skin color I have never even known was possible, and we will be joint heirs with Christ for all of eternity, sharing the grace of God and the blessings of Christ equally. My brother in Christ. That boggles my mind. There's only one church. Because there's only one God, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. It's the marvel of it. Marvel of it. Third thing I want you to notice is that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. It's interesting to me how Luke includes this account with Cornelius right on the heels of what? The conversion of another man. Who was it? Saul of Tarsus. Acts chapter 9. So you have the conversion of Saul, then you have the conversion of Cornelius, and they're placed back to back, side by side. And it is interesting to me to compare and contrast Saul, or Paul, with Cornelius. Just think of this. Paul was a Jew. Cornelius was a Gentile. Paul was clean. Cornelius was unclean. Paul had the law. Cornelius didn't have the law. Paul was on one side of this fence that separated Jews from Gentiles. Cornelius was on the other side of it. Paul was a persecutor. Cornelius wasn't. He gave alms to the Jewish people. He was probably a docile man toward the Jews. Paul was a scholar. Cornelius was a soldier. Paul was circumcised. Cornelius was uncircumcised. Paul thought that his own righteous acts were going to get him into heaven. Cornelius was well aware of his own unrighteousness. Well aware of his need for salvation. And yet the two men are saved by the same grace, to the same degree, in the same way, and on the same basis. That, my friends, is the power of God unto salvation. To the Jew first, and also to the Greek. 
Two men from completely opposite ends of the spectrum, as opposite as opposites could be, brothers in Christ. That's what Luke wants us to see. A self-righteous Jew, an unrighteous, and he knows he's unrighteous Gentile. And yet both are saved by the same grace, on the same basis, by the same Savior. Isn't that a wonder? You may be as opposite from me as you could possibly be. But friends, if you've trusted Christ, we're in the same grace. We are saved by the same Savior, the same blood, and the same atonement. How is that possible? You know how it's possible? Because the story of Acts and the story of church history, the story of all of history from the beginning to the end is not about me. It's not about you. It's not about Cornelius or Peter or Paul. You know what it's about? It's about God and His glory. That's what it's about. See, all the characters in the whole drama are really incidental. They're just the wallpaper, so to speak. It's all about God and about His glory. And when you and I start thinking that God saved me because I'm me, and I had something to offer to Him, or that God saved me for my good, or for my benefit, or for my blessings, then I get it all backwards. The reality of it is that God has saved me because of Him, not because of anything in me. And it is when I get that changed around and start to think that salvation's all about us, that's when pride and prejudice and partiality and favoritism start to creep into the picture. I'm going to stand in heaven with people that I've never known existed, saved by the same Savior, different skin colors, different backgrounds, different nationalities, different races, different languages, different tongues, people that you would never, ever, ever think would be together in any location. I'm going to stand side by side with that individual, one church, one grace for all of eternity. Why? Because of me? Because of him? Nope. It's all for God's glory. All for God's glory. And may God guard us from and prevent us from ever falling into the error of allowing pride and partiality and favoritism from creeping into our relationships, which comes in because you and I think it's all about us. God saved me because of me. That's not it. God saved us for His glory. That is the end for which God has created and done all things for Him and for His glory. Let's pray. Our Father, we are grateful for all that You've given to us in Christ. And I would pray, Father, that You would remind us day after day after day that it's all about You. It's not about us. It's not about our comfort. It's not about our traditions. It's not about our future, our blessings, or anything. We are just the wallpaper in this grand drama of redemption that's being played out. And we thank You that Your grace was deep enough and rich enough to reach to even us. We thank You that You do not show partiality to us, that You do not show favoritism to us, but that You bless us on the basis of Christ and all that He has done. We give You the glory and thank You in His precious name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.